Father, thanks for a moment to be still this morning, to be silent, uh, in a posture of humility, in a posture of listening to what you might have to say to us, and I pray that you would speak this morning through your word, by the power of your spirit, in the midst of your community, the church. God, would you help us see what this word love means, that you would give us correct um, adjustments to how we use the word love and how you talk about the word love. So help us this morning. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be soft and transformed into the image of your son. We're desperate for you to meet us this morning. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Well, I have a friend that we were having a conversation the other day, and he was talking about the first time he saw the Lord of the Rings movies. He never read the books, even though he says he's a Christian. And... Um, and so this is the first time he's watching the movies, and he's confused some of the characters and the way they're represented by Tolkien in the movies and obviously in the stories in the books, because what he understood an elf to be was probably more like the movie Elf. Elves are small and tiny, and they work in Santa's workshop. They build toys for Santa, or they build and bake cookies in a tree. That's what he thought elves were, but the way Tolkien represents elves in the Lord of the Rings stories is their normal size. They're actually kind of beautiful and majestic, and they shoot bow and arrows, and they're actually immortal. So he's confused because he's got, I've never heard elves represented this way, even though it's the same language talking about an elf. It's represented differently. It's the same word with a different definition. And we do this all the time in English, right? We talked about this even last week. Uh, and even another example is the word clip. The word clip in the verb form is pretty confusing if you're learning English because clip can be take something off, like he clipped their hair, or it actually can mean to attach something. You clip something together. So based on the context of the word and the understanding, like it has various meanings. And it, again, can be confusing for us. And if you study the Bible, you see when Jesus walked the earth, he was redefining language all the time. Maybe his most famous sermon is in Matthew chapter 5, and he uses this phrase at the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, and he uses it again and again and again. You know the phrase, he goes, you've heard it said, but I say. He's redefining language that's getting used. He's not throwing language out, but he's redefining it. And he goes, it's actually something deeper. It's something richer. It's something fuller. The kingdom is upside down. And let me help you define this language different than the way you're using it currently. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our text this morning is that we've been walking through a study on 1 John. We have a couple more weeks. We're finishing chapter 4. We didn't read all of the text we'll be covering today, but we'll be covering the rest of chapter 4. We'll jump into chapter 5 next week. And what we need to understand this morning is how we use the word love. We need to probably redefine the word love based on the biblical, the story of the Bible. If we're walking with Jesus and trying to ascribe to the way Jesus walks, he redefines love, and we need to pay attention to that and be aware of that. As we use the word love, it's probably different than the way the culture uses the word love. Because how the culture would probably use the word love, and even you can, you can go into certain stores and you can see t-shirts that say love wins on them, and I agree with that statement. Love does win. 
It totally wins. And we'll talk even how, how it wins even in John's passage. But the way the culture or the world would define love is probably different than how I would define love or hopefully how the Bible defines love. And so we need to consider that because the world or our culture would probably define love as uh, deep affection towards someone or something. It's deep affection. And, that's, and it kind of trumps everything else, but it has to do with yourself and it has to do with this affection. I think that's partially a definition of love, but I think it's incomplete. I think the Bible gives us a more fuller definition uh, and we'll see it in our text what love actually means. So that's where we're going to go in our text this morning. This is the big idea. If you want to write it down, you can. But this is it. How is love defined when love is divine? How is love defined when love is defined? If we're uh, understanding differently, like you've heard it said, this is how you love. But actually, this is really the Bible's definition of love, the true story of the world that we would ascribe to. How does the Bible talk about love and how do we see Jesus loving people? How is it compared to this language of worldly love? And really what we're going to see in this passage, some commentators uh, use the language of like, this is John's version of 1 Corinthians 13. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, because you've been to any wedding in our country, and Paul's language of defining love and what love actually is, he's redefining it, putting up against the culture's version of love. This is John's version of defining love. And love is the marker it is the marker of a follower of Jesus. We need to pay attention to that. Jesus says they will know you, why? By your doctrine? No, by your love. And so we need to understand what love means. And John is going to help us in that. And so here's how we're going to walk through the text this morning. These are not my categories. These are categories from the NIV application commentary. And I think they're helpful framing as we walk through the text. But here's the four ways we are going to define love and help us understand what does love actually mean when the Bible talks about it. Here's the first is the origin of Christian love. It's going to be verses 7 through 10. The second is going to be inspiration of Christian love, verses 11 through 16. The results of Christian love, verses 17 through 19, and then the command of Christian love, verses 20 through 21. So that's how we're going to frame our time as we walk through the text collectively to give us a good definition of what the Bible means when it uses the word love. Now, we need to remember the context of this passage as we've been walking. Maybe you're new with us and you're not familiar with the context of 1 John. John is writing this letter to the churches and the churches are divided. There are these people that have come in and said, actually, this is really what Jesus is like and this is who he is. It's a form of Gnosticism. We talked about that last week and it's splitting the community. People are confused about who Jesus actually is. And so John comes in and actually says, this is who Jesus is. And this is how you know him. You can be assured of that. This is what love means. And this is how you abide in him. He's kind of cutting through that. So even as we think of love, because John writes about love in his other parts of the Bible that he writes in his gospel and other letters. So this isn't new, but the direct context is in the midst of a community that is fighting with each other, a community of the church. And so we have to put those lenses on as we see, like he's directly uh, confronting interchurch love, which we don't have a problem with today at all. That's a joke if you've been around church at all. Because, man, we fight with each other all the time. Like, why is it so hard for us to get along again? If that's the marker from the outside world that doesn't know Jesus to say, oh, they know Jesus because they love one another, why are we so terrible at it? Man, because it's hard. 
And I think we have expectations, you know, when you're in a relationship with somebody and you open yourself up to that person and you have deep connection with them, they're maybe the ones that can hurt you the most. And we hurt each other in the church. I also think some of the reason we're confused about this that John is right to is like, because we're using the world's definition for love. And so if we're attaching the world's definition to love as we interact with each other, we're going to fall short because it's an incomplete definition of love. And that's what John is going after directly with these people. Gary Burge is helpful again as a commentator. He says it this way. He says, I note that John responds to a crisis without fixing blame or lodging exhortations of particular sins committed, which is what we do all the time when we fight each other, right? Like, well, you said this and you did that. He's going, John's not doing that. He says, rather than diagnose the source of the conflict, he concentrates on the remedy, which is love. So let's jump in. If you have a Bible, it's already open. Open it up to uh, 1 John chapter 4. We'll start in verse 7. Let's look at uh, this idea again of the origin of Christian love, these first several verses. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever has been born of God and knows God, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest, like revealed among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation only shows up a couple times in the Bible. It's kind of a theological word. It basically means like atonement or paying for something. Jesus paid for your sins to buy you back, to redeem you. Have you ever thought about, as we talk about this first section, the origin of love? I was studying for this text, and uh, I was in the office, and I was wondering, like, we don't really think about the origin of love, and I just popped out of my office, and Trevor and Summer were working there, and I said, what's the origin of love? And they were like, what are you talking about? Like, where did love come from? They're obviously going to say, well, God, okay, that's the right answer. Like, where, where did love come from? But when you start to have this conversation broadly, and you get to uh, people or communities that have thought about this, you think back to Aristotle and Plato, and they would sit around and debate some of these things. And maybe the most well-known of this symposium that Plato has, he contains this myth about the origin of human love. This is how it goes, which again, is hilarious to me when people talk about this book being archaic and out of touch and not real, and then you go to some of the other things that people talk about, which I'm going to say here in a minute, and you go like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't make our book sound crazy at all. Listen to what Plato says in his symposium. Maybe some of you have heard this if you took any philosophy in any classes, but he gives this myth, and he says, once upon a time, there were three types of people three types of people. There was uh, the male that descended from the sun, golden and radiant. Then there were female that descended from the earth. And then there was a person, both male and female, that descended from the moon, right? Multiple versions of this type of person. But uh, these early people, they don't look like us. They're completely round with four arms and four legs, two identical faces on opposite sides of a head with four ears and all else to match. 
And these groups of people, man, they were wild and they were unruly and they threatened to scale the heavens. So Zeus, who is the god, decides like to, to, to not let them get up to the heavens. I'm going to cut them in half. So he cuts all of them in half and he scatters them across the land. And in the midst of that, people searched all over for their other half. And when they finally found their other half, they wrapped themselves around the other half tightly, and they did not let go. When they found the other half, they were lost in an amazement of love and friendship and intimacy that cannot be accounted by mere lust, but for the need to be whole again, to be restored to their original nature. This is where we get the language of soulmate in our culture. Like, there's that perfect person, and they're scattered, and they're like, like, this is their version of the origin of love, which is not our version in the Bible, right? Like we believe that God is the creator, the designer, and that he created humanity to reflect his image. And part of reflecting his image is love. So even people that don't believe in Jesus or even believe in God, as humans, God has given common grace for them to experience love on some superficial level. Right? You know Christian or non-Christians, people in your family or your workplace that don't believe in who Jesus is, they can still be loving people, but I think that love is incomplete. It's not the depths of what Paul is, or John is going to unpack for us in Christian love. The non-Christian version of love and the origin, it's incomplete. Right, Because to receive love in this incomplete version of, of love, this non-Christian version of love, um, there's always this, this idea of receiving is like, I have to do the right things to keep receiving love. Like, I have to climb the right rungs in the ladder to continue to get love taken, uh, given to me. And the opposite is true. As I give love, man, the object of my love has to keep doing that for me. And if that stops, I stop loving or I stop receiving love. It's an incomplete version of what God wants to do in us and through us in love. Let's look back at the text, verse 7. This is what John says about love. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So you don't, uh, you don't climb this ladder of loving people well, and then if you reach the height, then you're born of God. You're enlightened. That's not how, what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying God actually is the one that bursts love inside of you. As he draws you to himself, as he shows you who Jesus is in love, in the midst of that, you're born by God, and then you're able to love completely and fully. God is always the initiator of love. We feel like it's often us. If we do these right things, we're going to attain this right way. Like, but God is the one. God is the one that comes to us and shows us what love is. As the Spirit regenerates your heart and makes you complete in Christ, you're able to receive, share, and give love the way he wants you to. Even though we still don't do it right all the way. But now at least we have the capacity to understand and do it because we're born in God. As we continue to look at the text, even in verse 9, this idea that love comes down to us is made manifest to us. Something that was covered is now uncovered. Love walks among us. When you used to be on 
staff with a college ministry, and when we would share the gospel of salvation with people, there was a diagram, and in this diagram, there was always an arrow that went down from Jesus down to us in the midst of the cross, and we would always say, like, what, uh, what direction is that arrow pointing? It's never humans going up to God. It's always God coming down to us, and this is what we see in the person of Jesus, that God, in his love, sends what love actually looks like fully embodied in the person of Jesus, so we can know and understand and react to what love actually is in our life. This is the origin of Christian love. And the more we experience that love because we're connected to Jesus, abiding in Jesus, tethered to Jesus, the more we understand that love from God to us, the more we will love other people. The more we love vertically, it will be a natural result of loving horizontally. That's the origin of love. And even looking at verse 10, again, it's not that we loved God, but that God loved us. The version of the origin of Christian love is not from us. It is from God. It always starts with God first. And often that's a different version of love that our world talks about. Right? Our, our, our world talks about an origin of love, like the spark or this feeling for this other person. And the Bible says, no, it actually starts with God changing you and giving you new life. So that's the first part, the, the origin of love is very different than the way that the culture of the world talks about love. The second is the inspiration of Christian love. As we continue in the text, verse 11, John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he is in God. We've come to know and believe that the love of God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. We talk about the inspiration of love. The world's inspiration for love is highly subjected and is based on the object of your affection, the object of your love. It's like riding a roller coaster. You get on, and when you ride that roller coaster, it's good and it's fun, but man, if you don't like it anymore, or you feel, I know that as I've aged, roller coasters are harder for me to ride. It feels, it feels disorienting at a different level, and so it's like, well, I'm just not going to ride that anymore. Or maybe you ride it enough, and you stay on that ride, and you go, actually, there's a new roller coaster over here, and I'm going to jump on that, and you have the freedom to decide if you want to keep on that ride or you want to leave that ride, and it's based subjectively on the object of your love. That's how the world defines the inspiration of love. Do you feel love or do you not? As long as it benefits me, I'll keep, I'll keep doing it. But the version of Christian love is quite different. Again, look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we might, we also ought to love one another. Christian love is inspired not by us deciding what we want to do, but it's actually inspired by God's love for us. So as you understand God's love for you, not just in your head, but down to your heart, it changes. We ought to love other people. Why? Because God loved us first. And when you really start to receive and understand that love, it inspires you to love others. It's a different version of love. Again, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This could be confusing language, right? Because uh, John, as we've walked through the study, he's going like, no, I have, I've touched Jesus. He is God. He is in the flesh. And then he's like, well, nobody's seen God. What I think he means by that is in uh, God's full glory, nobody has interacted with him. Even we just sang that song, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. That's based on Exodus and, and Moses going in. He's going, let me see your glory. Let me see your glory. And God says to Moses, if you see my glory, you will die. Go into this cleft of this rock, and I'll pass by you, just my back, and like, you'll, you'll just get a taste. And so what he's saying is here is even though we've seen Jesus' love walked among us, Jesus, full divinity but also full humanity, in his love, positioned himself in a way that people could see him and touch him and understand him. But now he's gone, and so for us, we can't see God. He's invisible, but you know what we can do as we love other people, and they see this radical, countercultural love, they go, that, 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 that seems, seems different. different. That feels that like, like the love of God, God, which is what we're called to. Verse 13, again, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. This inspiration is God's spirit abiding and empowering you and convicting you to love. You've given your life to Jesus. The Bible talks about it. We've talked about it. His spirit now lives in you. Love actually physically abides in you in his spirit. He empowers you to love when it's hard to love. And he also convicts you on how you ought to love, which is really annoying to your flesh because love can be hard sometimes. Last week, I'm walking the dog in the morning trying to get out of the house before it's 1,000 degrees, right? So... I get out early, I'm walking our dog, and I'm just spending some time praying as I walk the dog. And as I'm praying and I'm walking the dog, I felt like the spirit was like, you had a conversation with somebody yesterday, right? Like I made a joke with somebody the day before, and it like, it's like, I don't know how that was really received, you know? Like, I don't know if you've ever been in those moments. I was like, I don't think that person took that that way. But I'm not sure, and what I feel like the Spirit was doing in the moment as I was walking the dog, helping me, inspiring me to learn how to love, was go, you need to reach out to that person, and you need to apologize. And automatically, my flesh was like, no, that's, no, 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 that's dumb. Like, that feels vulnerable. I don't really think they probably took it that way. Even if they took it that way, they're being, you know, like, I can make, I can be a defense attorney really quickly as the Spirit convicts my heart. And I, as I felt like the Spirit was like, no. If you're going to love this person, you need to make sure there's, there's nothing that you said that is breaking your relationship. So I'm like, ah, oh, this is dumb, right? So I reached out to that person and just, just owned what I said. Like, hey, maybe, not like, oh, I made a joke with you and hopefully you didn't get it wrong. You know, like, no, I was like, listen, I need to apologize. Like, I said something. I'm not sure how you took it. Like, I'm sorry if I did any damage in our relationship and I hope you can forgive me. And I hope you understand this. And thankfully, we're like, yeah, I didn't take it that way at all. It's like, ah, come on. You know? Like, dang it. But that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit inspires us, convicts us to go, you know what? This is out of bounds. This isn't really love. This is you thinking of yourself only, and you're not thinking of others. And he convicts us to change, to move into hard conversations, into vulnerable conversations. And the reason I can move in and you can move into conversations like that is because regardless of what that person said, I know I'm rooted in who God is and how he loves me. And it allows me to have those hard conversations. It allows you to have those hard conversations because we're rooted in the love of God. 
but we're inspired in that way. Again, continue to look down at your text, verse 14 and 15. And we have seen and testify the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. Verse 16, and so we have come to know and believe the love of God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We've talked about that language of abiding. It means connecting, tethered to, like you can't pull it apart something beautiful about that idea of God's spirit abiding in us to help us, to empower us, to help us in the midst of our troubles with love. Verse 15, again, we talked about this last week, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God. We talked about this language of confession. Sometimes we read confession, we think it's just a public declaration and that's it. But the way that the original language is using this word of confession is in this way. It's not just to publicly say something. It's to fully declare, implying the yielding or changing of your convictions. So if you're a person that loves Jesus and has given your life to Jesus, surrendered your life to Jesus because you've realized that you're, you're separated from God, you're an alien from God, you're an enemy of God, and you go, man, I need Jesus in my life, and you confess that, you repent, you turn, and you go, like, I want to surrender everything to Jesus. In the midst of that confession, as you walk with Jesus, he changes you to learn how to be inspired by love. We need to be aware of that and in the midst of that he doesn't leave us to do it on our own he doesn't say okay you confessed it you're good with heaven now good luck trying to live it out on your own no he abides in us he's connected to us he wants to help us learn what it looks like to love again gary burge is helpful in this category he says this to say that we ought to love one another while true says nothing new But to construct the motive and power that enables love is truly significant. John envisions Christian believers who are so completely healed inwardly that reconciliation with the community is a natural byproduct of spiritual maturity. That we've been so healed inwardly that we understand the love of God for us that allows us to go into spaces that are hard, to go into spaces that are confusing, because we know we're rooted in God's love. So again, we have the origin of Christian love, the inspiration of Christian love, and next we see the result of Christian love. Verse 17, as we continue. It says, by this, the love, uh, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is also, uh, are we, sorry, because As he is, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Again, the world's version of love, or the world's results of love, always has an element of fear attached to it. This incomplete worldly version of love always has fear attached to it because if you think about it again it's like this idea of like man what happens if they stop loving me what happens if i stop loving them and there's a fear attached to that my parents ended up splitting and getting divorced when i was 12 
It was as amicable as it could be, even when I talk about it. And I think all of us, as we're growing up, we think like our reality is just normal reality. I don't know if you've experienced that. And then you step into adulthood and you go, oh, actually, that was probably kind of unhealthy, you know? Like, but you just, you're, you're in it in the midst of it. And so uh, in the midst of my parents getting divorced, they weren't using uh, me or my brother to get back at each other. They were amicable in the midst of that. And, and so I'm trying to understand it as a 12-year-old. It didn't really hit me until the week after I got married. My wife and I have been married 23 years now. We get back from my honeymoon. I wake up the first day in our apartment, and I go, am I just gonna stop loving my wife after 16 years? Because that's what was told to me when my parents got a divorce. And man, I'm a lot like my dad on a lot of levels, personality-wise. And so I woke up that morning and go, am I just going to stop loving my wife out of nowhere after 16 years? Now, obviously, their relationship was way more complex than that, but that's what I heard and that's what I understood. And that's where I went like, oh my gosh, that terrifies me. And I felt like the Lord in that moment was going, that's not the version of love that you ascribe to. You don't have to be afraid. Continue to pursue your wife. Continue to love your wife. It's not going to fall off of a cliff all of a sudden like it did with your parents. Do you understand that version of love? Cast out fear. That's why it's incomplete. The worldly version, the cultural version of love always has fear to it. But when you know you have been loved and you understand that love from the Father, do you know you don't have any fear anymore? Now, certainly we have fear in our relationships. But we ought not to have fear about how God loves us if we stepped into a relationship with Jesus. And look at the direct context of what um, John is talking about. He's talking about the day of judgment you see in verse 17. And then in verse 18, he's talking about for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This word punishment, it only shows up three times in the entire Bible. And it has to deal directly with what happens when you die. This separation from God, this punishment from God. Because there's a difference of discipline and punishment, right? Hebrews talks about, man, God loves, he, he disciplines the ones he loves. So there's discipline involved in love so that you can be corrected and made right and made more human, but you shouldn't feel this fear of punishment because if you're rooted in the cross, do you know, and we've talked about this, the Father looks at you through the lens of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. So when the Father looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus, and that gives you no fear. Because it's not based on you. It's not based on your work. It's based on the work of the cross. And if you look at it through that lens, you now don't have fear. And if you had any part of your life where you don't have fear attached, you live way differently. You live free, and this is what it should do in us as we understand the love of the Father. We can move into loving others because we don't have fear attached to our love. I don't know about you, but I, I mean, I grew up uh, as an athlete playing all types of different sports, and I had a variety of different coaches. And if you're not an athlete, man, you had different teachers, or you had maybe different parents, or maybe different bosses in your employee uh, employment and for me as a, an athlete I, I kind of can boil it down to two different versions of coaches uh, only one fits in one category all the others fit in the others there's a difference of a coach that likes you 
Like he, he, he cares about you, but like he's more interested in the program and he's more interested in like his own uh, resume and all the things that a normal coach would be interested in, especially if they're not a follower of Jesus. And then there's a coach that loves you. And here's the difference in your operation as you are an athlete or an employee or a parent, you know, or a kid or whatever. Like, like, I would still do things for this coach. And I did do things for this coach because I wanted to play. And I loved the game. And so I would do things for that coach, but kind of fearing punishment. Like, man, if I make a mistake, I'm going to be on the bench. Or like, this coach over here that I knew loved me for me, I'd run through a wall for that guy. Not for fear of punishment, but for motivations of love. It actually made me better. And this is the dichotomy that John is using here. He's going, listen, if you still operate in this fear, in this punishment that God is out to get you, that he's going to, like, and you've already committed your life to Jesus, you're not operating in freedom, you're operating in fear, and that's actually not the best version of love and humanity for you. Because, man, you can operate in freedom. Because what Jesus has done for you, and then that allows you to move into a different version of receiving, sharing, and giving love. Again, I keep quoting Gary. I think he's great for this commentary. Listen to what he says specific to this idea of the result of love. He says, fear is not a primary pastoral tool. John does not use fear as a pastoral strategy because perfect love drives out fear. Whenever our perception of God is shaped by fear and anxiety, worry, perhaps over losing his affection, we've not plumbed to the depths of his love. Isn't that good? So when you start to feel fear creeping in of what God thinks of you, what a, like, go back to Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Look at what it says about him. Spend time in your Bible. Again, that's why this is so massively important to us understand. If we're walking with Jesus, it's not just coming here on a Sunday and listening and kind of getting fed and then you go out the door. No, we need, this, is like, this is like an appetizer on Sunday. We gather together. We rehearse the story of God. We sing. We take communion. We center ourselves on the person of Jesus. You need to be getting fed outside of this room so you can understand that God loves you. In your personal time and other community times, you, you need to be around people because, again, you're walking out these doors and the culture is going to define love in a radically different way than the Bible defines love. And so we need to be reminded of that version of love that we would hold true and see it in the person of Jesus. The last thing, so again, we've got the origin of Christian love, the inspiration of Christian love, the results of Christian love, and then the command of Christian love. Verses 20 and 21 say this. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has, uh, he, he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. In the world's definition and version of love, the culture's definition and version of love, commanding love is totally optional. Again, you bail when you want to bail. When you're done loving, you don't, you can just, you're done loving. You don't have to, it's not a command. It's not like, I don't want to impose my will on you to love somebody else. Like, but the Christian version, like it's not optional. It's a command. This is who we are as followers of Jesus. We're commanded to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Certainly we're commanded to love people outside of uh, the, the Christian faith, but we're called to love each other, which again is maybe harder than sometimes loving the people that don't know Jesus. 
It'd be like this. Let's say we get into um, a relationship and, and, and we have conversations of friendship and, and we're hanging out quite a bit. And then all of a sudden, like part of who I am relationally is my extended family, my kids, my wife. And so all of a sudden um, we, we start hanging out as a group. And we go on a couple dinners and we're with my wife. Maybe it's several years into this. And then all of a sudden you come to me uh, in private and you go, hey, man, John, like, man, I actually really like you. I, I think I, I love spending time with you. But your wife, man, she's, uh, I, don't, I don't love her. I don't even like her. Which nobody would ever say. It's usually the reverse of that equation. But for the sake of the illustration, let's continue to tease it out, right? So uh, you come to me and you're like, man, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't I, man, I don't like your wife. Like, she's got problems. Like, uh, like, this is exactly what the father is saying about his bride. We would have relational issues if you said that to me. I go like, well, how can we continue if that's, like, you really don't like my wife? My wife is part of who I am. And what the Father is saying is that when you talk about my bride, the church, my people, you cannot separate your love for me and your love for the church. It does not work. It doesn't work. And I get it. I get it. The church is all kinds of messed up. We are a mess. I get why we would go like, oh, man, me and Jesus or me and God, we're here, but the church is like, ah, I don't think I need to be there. I don't like, and we're missing the full version of love that God is calling to. He's saying like, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother or sister, like you don't really know God, you don't really understand what love is. And so we need to understand that. And we need to go, okay, God, would you help me? Man, it's hard being around tree. Right, my wife, like, oh, it's really hard. It's hard being around the church because we hurt each other, man. We say things in pride. We don't forgive each other. We get all bound up in these fights and these arguments, and it has to do with our, our way. Like, like, it's just a mess. It's a mess. And what God is calling us back to is going, if we're rooted in God's love for us and we're uh, understanding that I don't have to get my love from you. I get it from the Father, and that allows me to enter into conversations even if we disagree, even if I'm hurt by you. I can forgive just like Jesus forgave me. We got to figure this out, you guys, because we're a mess. And the beauty is we don't do it on our own. It's not us trying to figure it out on our own. It's God's Spirit working in and through us, convicting us, empowering us to go, this is what it looks like to love. And this is what we're called to, to a watching world. Let's not let the world define love for us. That's just a cheap substitute. It's incomplete. Let's look at what the Bible says. Let's look at who Jesus is and take our cues on how to love from him and from the story of God. Let's pray. Father, we need you to remind us of this truth this morning and continually as we go, man, how do we love? God, would you help us not believe in the definition of love from our culture, from the world, but would we get our definition of love from you as we look at your son, as we look at your story, help us be others focused in love. We need you to empower us to do that, inspire us to do that, help us understand that this is, a, this is, this is not something that's optional in the Christian journey. This is something that we're called to do as you shape and form and change us into the image of your son. Empower us to do that well. 
We ask that you would do it even in this, in our hearts this morning, that you would take uh, what we understand about love in our head and drop it down to our heart and then move it down to our hands and feet to a watching world. We pray in your son's name. Amen.